There was also an argument among the disciples as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. But Jesus said to them, the royals of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have power over them are called benefactors. But not so with you all. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? Yet I am among you all as one who serves. You are the ones who have remained with me in my trials. So then I covenant with you all, just as my Abba has covenanted with me a royal inheritance, so that you all may eat and drink at my table in my realm, and you all will sit on the thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zach. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. I'm really grateful to be with you this morning virtually. Uh, for those of you who are local, I hope you enjoyed October's snow and November's sunshine. Today's text uh, is one that's really, uh, it, it really captures the spirit of the Gospel of Luke. You may have heard me talk before about the Lucan great reversal, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you're paying attention during the reading, this might sound a little bit familiar. This isn't the only time that Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Luke, um, but it is a snapshot of a conversation. And it's a snapshot not just of Jesus's vision for the kingdom, but also of the disciples' utter like misunderstanding of what the project is all about. And this can be really confusing, right? Because Jesus has been working with these guys and preaching to them and talking with them and sharing meals. They've been studying under him. They have been his disciples and he their teacher for now years. And they still fundamentally misunderstand the heart of the kingdom where all people are liberated, where all people have what they need and where hierarchies are absolutely demolished. So you might think like, wow, these guys are dumb. But I think one of the reasons we have these stories and we have them in this way is not because the disciples are buffoons, but because maybe they did understand it at kind of an intellectual level, but we're being shown kind of behind the curtain how difficult it is to truly internalize a vision of the kingdom and of liberation for all people. It is so, so hard. In this text, uh, one of the examples that Jesus gives is of the monarchy, the royals. Now, Jesus' disciples are like, hey, which one of us is the best? Like, which one of us is the greatest? There are conversations about who's going to sit at your right hand, right? Like, they're like, okay, but if you had to rank us, I'd be at the top, right? And Jesus is like, you guys, (laughs) you guys don't understand, like, We're trying to build an unkingdom. We're trying to level monarchies. We're trying to destroy hierarchies of value, of material resources. But you can't 
Uh, you can't get it out of your system. It's like still there. Your imagination is really lacking here. And he draws a parallel. He's like, the royals of the Gentiles lord it over them. And in this framework, in this kind of monarchy framework, Jesus is the one who has the most authority, the most right to claim that seat of monarchy, right? So if God is Lord of all and Jesus is the son of God within this patrilineal system, Jesus has the right to the throne, has the right to be above everybody. And he's like, I came and I'm here serving you, hanging out with you at the bottom of the heap, right? Like, making you food, making you wine out of your water, washing your feet. Like if this hasn't demonstrated for you yet what a true reversal is, we still have work to do. The other texts that Will Gaffney puts into the lectionary for this week are all about monarchy. And her invitation is to think about how crap a frame monarchy is for understanding the gospel and understanding the kingdom. And yet, how often do we sing about how Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord. It's because that's the language we have. But the invitation is to say those things, Christ the King, Jesus is King, Jesus Lord of my heart, and to really invert what that framework of monarchy is to begin with. To say we're trying to envision something totally other than all of that. The kingdom as Jesus is teaching it is about the liberation of all people, safety of all people, respite from a violent system of hierarchy. It's about creating equity. It's about peace. But truly all of these things, liberation, safety, equity, peace, are actually beyond our imagination. Now that doesn't mean that they're not impossible to achieve, but given the constraints that we have right now, the systems where very many are not liberated, you could argue that no one is really liberated right now. Very many are not safe. You could argue that no one is truly safe right now. There is no equity. There is absolutely no peace, right? So as we are trying to imagine these things, we are constrained by the frameworks we have in our world right now. It's just outside the scope of our imagination, and we are called to a prophetic imagination that imagines beyond, but we are also limited in our capacities. And every time we reinvest ourselves into the systems and hierarchies of oppression that we are embedded in, we root ourselves in this place that limits our imagination. We can't actually think beyond it. And the only way to move out of that is to actually divest from those systems build new ones that feel liberatory, realize how they're not liberatory yet either, but then be, be imagining from a fundamentally different place so that we can get to the next. Now, it's really hard for us to do when we're looking around the world for our models. I mean, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, you've got um, people surrounded by monarchies and the Hebrew people saying to God, like, we want a king. And God's like, no, no, you really don't. And the Hebrew people are like, um, we want a king. And God's like, I'll give you judges. Like, let's try this on. Like, that's kind of like what you're talking about, but maybe a little better. And that doesn't work. And the people are like, we want a king. And so, okay, here, here's your king. We're going to try monarchy. But I think that these are concessions made by God because God's people 
were feeling so constrained in their imaginations by what was around them that they couldn't imagine the kind of liberatory um, social constructions to which God is inviting us. <coughs> so when we are trying to get out from under these systems of hierarchy, we have a tendency to merely recreate them. Now we understand that we're responding to crisis, right? The Hebrew people were under attack. They had, you know, enemies that had kings and armies and all these other structures that they were like, we need this just to survive in this world. And fast forward into our most recent history, we've got a lot of people who in their unsafety have had to rely on the systems and hierarchies, uh, trying to recreate them to carve out some safety for themselves. We have in the history of Europe, uh, widespread persecution of Jewish people, for instance, right? So like we've got this history of a very vulnerable people being persecuted at every level of society, culminating in, uh, in the Holocaust, in um, widespread, um, uh, widespread sort of cultural understandings of, of, of dehumanization, like this really awful situation, right? And so... What is the response to that? How do we keep Jewish people safe in the wake of World War II? Well, some people got together and there were a lot of factors at play. There were a lot of empires making decisions, a lot of um, powerful white supremacist forces looking to have a foothold in the Middle East. But in and through and woven around all of that was also this deep desire for the Jewish people to be safe. And in a world where it is nation states that war against one another, that also are the only kind of recourse for protection for a lot of people, the thought was, we will make a Jewish state. We will make a theocratic ethnostate called Israel. And so folks got together seeking safety. And this framework of saying like, we will have an ethnostate. We will have a nation that is just us. We will have this like, this spiritual identity, this like lineage of religion, right? And, and no one will persecute us because we will be in charge of ourselves. And this is what's gonna happen. But the only way then for us to defend ourselves is to build up one of the strongest militaries in the world, certainly the strongest military in the Middle East, allied with the strongest military in the world in the United States, that is an absolute war machine. And this is how we'll keep ourselves safe, by having a separatist uh, ethno state that, uh, that just says the only way to be safe is to be segregated, essentially. Now, I want to just like shout out here for a second that the, the state of Israel does not represent the feelings, theology, will, intention of all Jewish people, um, much in the same way that our kind of like low-key but also high-key Christian um, government in the United States does not represent all people who follow Jesus. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that this is not the way to stay safe. But those people, Jewish, Christian, and otherwise, who are bought into the state of Israel as a safety mechanism for Jewish people have created then a system whereby the only place, the only place, the only safe place for Jews to be, that's the framework that they're building around this nation state, requires 
colonizing activity requires apartheid because if it's a, an ethnic, like if it's a theocratic uh, ethnostate, then anyone who doesn't fall under that religious and ethnic identity cannot participate in the same way. So it requires at, at best a form of apartheid. And at worst, and I think this is what we are seeing right now, at worst, ethnic cleansing. That is the only way to keep totally separate uh, a nation state that provides its best version of safety on the basis of segregation. Now, on the flip side, we have Palestinian people who have been run off their land and forced into open-air prisons and, and ghettoized and all of these things. And in the same way that there are lots of, of Jewish folks who have very different political ideologies, but then the dominant um, power force that has emerged is the state of Israel. There are many Palestinians with lots of different uh, politics and strategies, but the dominating force right now there is Hamas. And what is Hamas's solution for Palestinian safety? Hamas is like, we can do this. We can create safety for the Palestinian people. All we need is a theocratic ethnostate. Hamas is trying to create a theocratic ethnostate by, by uh, you know, cleansing, right? Like eradicating Jewish people from the land and creating a, a, essentially like a Muslim corollary to the state of Israel. And like that is going to require, again, violence, colonization, ethnic cleansing language is, is emerging even from this currently oppressed people. Currently, um, you know, this, this force within Hamas is trying to just imagine the first shall be last and the last shall be first by turning it completely upside down, but not disrupting the fundamental structure of the system of hierarchy. And this has happened throughout history over and over again. It's so understandable. It's actually one of the reasons that I think people look at revolutions and feel completely depressed because it is so common for us to shift around who has power without shifting the structures of power that place some over others. And without doing that, we can never be free but our imaginations are limited, especially when we keep reinvesting in systems of hierarchy that are causing us harm. Now, people who are really invested in um, nation states and in safety through military force and borders say that the only way to achieve peace in the Middle East is through a two-state solution. There will be the state of Israel and Palestine will get its own nation state autonomous rule with, with secure, secure borders. But what I find really interesting is that there are many people on the ground, many people coordinating who are trying to provide humanitarian aid, ongoing, not just right now in the crisis, but, but in the ongoing crisis of the last 75 years, people who have been advocating for peace in Palestine, in Israel, Jewish activists, Jewish-Israeli activists, Palestinian activists, Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Christians, um, Christians from, from all over the world. Um, I know of this in part because of my parents who were part of Christian peacemaker teams who went down and are having these conversations with folks on the ground. 
and saying, hey, from the ground, from your network of relationships across these ethnic and religious identities, what is the solution here? And they're like, it's not a two-state solution. There is no two-state solution here. We need a one-state solution. We need a solution whereby Israeli Jews and Muslim Palestinians and Christian Palestinians and Jewish Palestinians can all live together in one shared governance where everyone can have rights and everyone can provide for one another. Like, we can't keep separating ourselves and recreating these nation states, these exclusivist, you know, theocratic ethnostates. We cannot keep doing that. The only solution here is for us to build something together, to provide for one another's safety across difference. And that seems so, that seems so impossible, right? But it also feels so simple. And it is the difference between nation states trying to organize peace and relational organizing. People in interpersonal relationships saying like, hey, we got to figure out how to live together, to care for one another, to keep one another safe, to not rely on structures on modern day monarchies to just war with one another, to keep some people at the top and some people at the bottom always and to have so much collateral damage during every ongoing conflict. This requires deep interpersonal work and healing, and it also requires dismantling not just the structures of hierarchies, but the logics of hierarchies. We have to imagine a different kind of safety in order to understand the call to kingdom but we can't. We are so trapped within our understandings, within the promises, the false promises of empire, that we just keep reinvesting in them, even as they continue to fail us. We just keep saying, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who should hold the most power? Who should be in charge? And Jesus, who, according to the logics of empire, has the right to all of it, is like, have you learned nothing? Like, you've got to You've got to level all of that. You've got to start on the ground with me, caring about one another. Now, this might seem sort of pie in the sky or even just like removed from the systems of oppression. But actually, the, the deeper I get into the work of systemic liberation, the more acutely aware I am of how much of it is replicating itself simultaneously at systemic and structural levels and interpersonal levels and deep inside each and every person. And if we're not dismantling hierarchy at every level, we're never going to win. Because we can take apart all these external structures, but if we haven't dismantled it internally and interpersonally, we're just going to keep recreating them. There is a project right now that, that Cameron has dedicated a lot of time to and other activists um, in the community. It's called the Trans Safety Task Force. A bunch of trans folks led uh, specifically by black trans folks were saying like, hey, what does safety actually look like in our community? Because trans people are not safe. Trans people are not safe here, especially black trans people, especially black trans women. We just held our fourth vigil, you guys, in the last year. 
Um, and over and over again, the only thing that our community keeps offering back to us is more policing. We're being urged to support the cops as they bring justice for those murdered through, uh, through policing, through the carceral system, through imprisonment. And it just feels so, so cyclical. And so there are some brilliant trans folks who got together and started saying like, we have to imagine beyond this. We have to imagine a different kind of world. Let's imagine one step outside of what we have and just see what's there. And so much of what's coming up is interpersonal violence because the structures that create harm, that the structures that contribute to the murders of black trans women are not just these big out here structures. So much of the violence that trans people experience, including black trans women, is at the hands of other people who share many of those identities. Black trans women are being murdered in black queer spaces in this city. And so we know that there is interpersonal and internalized violence that is coming from every level and that we are invited to just recreate when we say, yes, we're going to bring justice to our murdered sisters by by bringing violence um, to those who murdered them and just recreating these cycles of harm, especially through policing. We have to deal with internalized queer phobia. We have to deal with misogynoir in our like intersectional spaces. And one of the things that's tough is that we keep trying to create affinity spaces, right? Like, well, you know, queer folks aren't safe out in the world. Let's create queer spaces. Except that we discover very quickly that queer space recreates white supremacy. And so queer spaces are white. And so even if we say like, well, queer spaces are the only places that queer people can be safe. Which queer people? Because not all queer people are safe in queer space. And so then we have to create further affinity groups that say, okay, well, we need black queer space. We need BIPOC queer space. We need Latinate queer space. And so we're fracturing again. But in that space, are trans people safe? Are people with disabilities safe? Are neurodivergent people safe? And what we discover very quickly is that the more intersectional identities you have, the further you must segregate yourself if affinity is the only answer. This is not the solidarity to which we are called. When Jesus says what you do for the least of these, aka the most marginalized, the most oppressed, the people dealing with the most um, violence in our community, whatever we do for that person, we do for all of us. We do for Jesus. We do for ourselves. We cannot keep fracturing our communities and investing in segregation. Now, don't get me wrong. Affinity spaces are great and I think are going to be required for a really long time. <laughs> and there are some ways in which people are more safe in affinity spaces, even if they hold marginalized identities in those spaces. But it cannot be our only or primary answer to violence and to creating safety. We have to figure out how to care about one another across difference. 
We have to figure out how to be invested in one another's liberation, equity, and well-being. We have to figure out how to actually dismantle those systems of hierarchy and oppression, not just out there, but between us and inside of us. It can be really impossible to try and imagine a fundamentally different world, but that is the task to which we are called. And you know what? We're not going to do it perfectly. And I think that that's one of the fears. We say, well, I can't imagine what that would look like, so all I can do is work with what I have here. This is the pushback we get a lot around abolition. So Zao is explicitly an abolitionist community. We want to imagine a world beyond prisons, policing, and surveillance. And one of the pieces of pushback that we get right away is like, well, what do you do about this, this, and this? What do you do with violent offenders? What do you, you know, okay, so you just want to open the jails right now. You just want to, uh, like, make all the police departments disappear right now. <laughs> and, like, it's folks who are so invested in the way we have being the only way that they're like, okay, so you want to blow it up? What are you going to do instead? We need to take a breath when we're in those spaces, when we're in that kind of reactionary energy and say, hey, listen, we actually don't know what a world beyond prisons, policing, and surveillance looks like. But we know that we'll never get there if we're not trying to get there. We know that we will get there through taking steps towards it, dismantling these systems and building alternatives at the same time. It can be really difficult to think about how we dismantle our sense of safety that is embedded in empire and policing and incarceration by just making those things disappear. But what if we divest from them as the long-term solution? If we say, we know this isn't it. And as we work to dismantle this, we're going to experiment. We're going to imagine. We're going to, you may have heard the phrase, make the road by walking it. It is poets and organizers who began using that phrase that has become a little bit more ubiquitous. We make the road by walking it. We build a, the kingdom by building it. And that reminds me of two things. One, we make the road by walking it. Sounds a little bit like we build solidarity in the struggle. We are not safe with one another. And it may seem very foolish and arrogant and privileged for me to say like, well, we all just need to like rely on each other. It's true that we can't right now. But if we're not trying to build a world where we can, then we are just recreating a segregationist world that we have, a hierarchical world that we have. So we need to be investing in a future that is beyond our imagination. We need to be working towards it and dismantling what came before. Solidarity is built in the struggle, which means that we will become better people to one another. We will be building actual solidarity through fighting for a different and better world. And we're going to screw it up a lot along the way at every level. And some of that harm is going to really suck. And it's going to disproportionately harm people who are vulnerable. And that is happening right now in the systems we have. And recreating those systems will be even worse. So we cannot let our inability to create a utopia plan stop us from pursuing the kingdom and building something worth imagining.
The other thing that the, the, that brings to mind, we make this road, we make the road by walking it, is that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, when Jesus is talking about what it means to live into his teachings, one of the phrases that comes up a lot is the way. I am the way. This is not Jesus saying, I am the kingdom, or I am the destination, I am the monarch. Jesus is saying, I am the path. I am the process. We have to find our way to the kingdom together. And you can do it through me, through my teachings, through my love. But we actually have to make the way by walking it. We have to trust in one another enough to be in conversation and in process together. And we have to lay down our strategies given to us by empire, even if in the short term they seem more valuable. We may build things along the way that are problematic. We will. That's like our only, that's our only option is to build more problematic stuff. But if it is even just the fraction, the tiniest bit, a grain of sand more liberated, then from that future space, we have just that much more imagination to move into kingdom thinking to move into processes and systems and personhoods of liberation. The more we build, the more we divest from monarchy, from hierarchy, from systems of oppression, from empire, the more we invest in projects of liberation, no matter how flawed, the more room we have to imagine what comes next, the more capability we have to make the road by walking it, the more we are able to, to go on the way of Jesus toward the kingdom, toward liberation, towards connection, holiness, solidarity, love, and peace. Anyone who promises peace here and now in this time is a liar. It only makes me think of the Pax Romana, the promise of the Roman Empire, that everything was at peace because they ruled with violence, because any resistance would just be immediately struck down. The peace of empire is bereft. The peace of the kingdom is a long way off, but we will only get there by walking toward it, by moving toward it together, by building something in our limited imaginations now that allows us to dream more and more every generation towards liberation and joy. Will you make this way with me? Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you so much for having an imagination beyond our own. God, sometimes we are like the disciples, hearing and listening, but not internalizing, still ever and only defaulting to our empire settings. God, expand our hope and imagination. Give us the dreams possible to move toward liberation and kingdom and true peace. God, give us the tools. Let us lay down those things that would keep us in empire. God, let us entrust to you our doubts and fears and frustrations with our own limitations. God, let us grieve the ways that we will fail and harm one another and be harmed. And God, let us trust in you that you are doing a good work in us, that you are building something holy, that we are on the way toward the kingdom that our struggle will build solidarity and that someday we may all be free.
Amen.